Let's pray, and then we're going to look at Daniel chapter 5. Sorry. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for our time to be together this morning. And Lord, as we have lifted our hearts up in worship, God, I pray uh, that we would now uh, open our hearts to be taught by your Spirit, that your Word would be uh, strong and authoritative and transformative in our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's the evening of October 12th, 539 BC. And it's a perfectly normal night in Babylon, which is the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time, except for two things. The Medo-Persian army is encamped around the plains surrounding Babylon, laying siege to the city. And Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, is throwing a party for a thousand of his nobles. But before I tell you what happens, allow me a few minutes to tell you how we got to this point. Chapter four that we talked about last week takes place in kind of the final 10 years of King Nebuchadnezzar's life. For seven of those years, he was under the judgment of God, living among the beasts of the field, remember? But when he finally humbled himself, he's restored to his throne and he reigns for another two or three years before dying in 562 BC. Now chapter 5 opens in 539 BC, which means that about 25 years or so have passed since Nebuchadnezzar issued his press release, because he lived a couple years after that. And a lot has happened in the Babylonian kingdom during that time. Let me give you kind of a rundown. When Nebuchadnezzar died, his son, evil Merodach, took the throne. Two years later, he was murdered by his brother-in-law, Neriglissar. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's the best I can do. (laughs) And Neriglissar ruled the land for about four years, and then he died. I put some of this stuff in your notes, uh, in your bulletin. His son, Neeraglissar's son, Labashi Marduk, he took the throne but was assassinated just two months later during a revolt. And that revolt placed a man named Nabonidus on the throne. And Nabonidus was Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law. He had married Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. Interestingly, This chapter of the Bible, Daniel chapter 5, was used for years by critics to prove that the Bible could not be trusted. It's full of errors, the critics would say. And this chapter proves it. Because Daniel 5 identified Belshazzar as the king of Babylon, but the name Belshazzar did not appear anywhere in the historical record. Nowhere. Nabonidus was listed as the last king of Babylon. So clearly, the critics said, clearly the Bible is in error and cannot be trusted. But in 1854, a British diplomat named Taylor was exploring some ruins in southern Iraq for the British Museum, and he found several small cylinders inscribed with cuneiform writing. 
And those inscriptions, when translated, revealed that they had been written at the command of Nabonidus, and they contained a prayer for the long life and good health of the king, Nabonidus, and his eldest son, whose name was Belshazzar. And since that time, archaeologists have found more than three dozen texts identifying Belshazzar not only as the king's son, but also as the co-regent. He he was co-reigning with Nabonidus. Because Nabonidus traveled widely and was absent frequently. One time he was absent from Babylon for 10 years straight. And during those long absences, it was Belshazzar, his son, who ruled the empire. And once again, the Bible was proved to be true. Now, under Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon had become, it had risen in power and expanded in scope and reach and influence to become a world power. It ruled the world. But now as chapter 5 opens, about 25 years have passed and leadership has changed hands four times. What condition is the kingdom in? If Belshazzar had to give a state of the kingdom address to his people, what would he say? Well, given what is told to us in the historical records and in Daniel chapter 5, I think Belshazzar was living in a state of denial and spiritual defiance. I say that because the historical record tells us that the Medo-Persian Empire was surrounding the city of Babylon. They had been growing in power, this Medo-Persian Empire, they had been growing in power and expanding their kingdom, and then they went out on a military campaign, and they were crushing any and all resistance And Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, had actually come back from his travels and went out to the uh, front lines to do battle against the Persians, and he had been captured. And now the Medo-Persian army was at their doorstep, surrounding the city of Babylon. And you would expect if that's the case, you would expect a king to be mustering his troops and forming a strategy and preparing to give a battle cry. But Daniel 5 does not paint that picture of a leader who's poised for battle and ready to defend his people. Rather, it portrays a man who is in denial, who is proud, defiant, He's about to be overrun. He's about to lose everything, but he is smug and overconfident and full of himself. I titled this sermon, Spiritual Defiance, a story in five acts. And in the time remaining, I want to walk us through these 31 verses together, and I want to unpack this story kind of in five sections, making observations and application along the way. So the story begins, Act act 1, is a pompous king. He's a pompous king. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, King Belshazzar gave a banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, just read predecessor there, his 
father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron and wood and stone. Let's stop there. With his city surrounded, King Belshazzar throws a party, a big party for a thousand of his nobles. Number of possible reasons here as to why he might have thrown a party at that time, but I believe it was a sign of his defiance. It was bravado. He thought he was totally safe inside his kingdom. No enemy could ever get to him. No enemy posed any real threat to his security. Babylon was considered to be impregnable because of its magnificent fortifications. The city had not been stormed by invaders for over a thousand years. It was surrounded not only by a very large moat, but also by a massive wall, 80 feet thick and over 300 feet high in some places. Along this wall were a hundred highly fortified guard towers to protect the wall and defend the people inside. 80 feet thick, multiple chariots could ride on top of the wall side by side by side. And the wall was complete with these river gates at the bottom, which allowed the Euphrates River to flow under the wall, under the wall and then in and through the city, providing fresh water for her inhabitants. And in addition to that, Belshazzar had stockpiled enough food for many, many years. So Belshazzar had his wall, he had his food, he had his water, and so like the rich fool in Luke 12, he said to his people, let's eat, drink, and be merry. And party they did. Archaeologists have unearthed Belshazzar's throne room. It was an enormous banquet hall measuring 170 feet long, 55 feet wide. This was a massive banquet hall. And while protocol typically placed the king in a separate room from the people during a party like this, Belshazzar wasn't going to separate himself. He wanted to be right in the midst of his people. So he stayed in the grand hall, right in the midst of the crowd, and he led the debauchery. The time had come in the evening for, uh, for offering toasts and uh, pouring out libations to the God of the Babylonians. And in his drunken bravado, Belshazzar thought of a novel way to entertain his guests. What about those beautiful golden goblets and bowls from Solomon's temple? We could use those. I mean, after all, they were fashioned for a defeated god named Yahweh, who's only worshipped by this little defeated country named Judah. Why not use those? These dishes have been sitting around gathering dust for the last 66 years since Nebuchadnezzar brought them to Babylon. But you have to see is this was a deliberate act of defiance. At his worst, 
Nebuchadnezzar never tampered with the sacred vessels of another god. He wouldn't do it. There were certain lines Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't cross. And he certainly wouldn't do that to the God of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar had decreed to all of his people that they were to respect the God of the Jews. And he himself, remember last week in chapter 4, he himself had praised the Lord for his sovereignty and his greatness. And I believe surrendered his life to him. But as the years passed, the great king's decree about a foreign God of a defeated country seemed to be forgotten. And Belshazzar came to the throne, and he treated the God of Israel with arrogance and disrespect. The men and women at the feast brazenly used these consecrated vessels as if they were red solo cups to drink themselves drunk. And as they did, they worshipped the false gods of Babylon. I mean, after all, the gods of Babylon had defeated the God of the Hebrews, so what was there to fear? Belshazzar and his guests could not have behaved more blasphemously than they did. In a way, in a way, Belshazzar was saying to the God of Israel that just as the Babylonians had conquered the Jews, so the Babylonian gods were victorious over the God of the Jews. And if he wanted to use the goblets from the Jewish temple for his own immoral use, there was nothing the God of Israel could do about it. And that's the bottom line because Belshazzar said so. Right? Friends, spiritual defiance is rooted, it is always rooted in our pride. D.L. Moody once said, when a man thinks he has got a good deal of strength and he is self-confident, you may start to look for his downfall. It might be years before it comes to light, but it has already commenced. The Apostle Paul reminds us of a similar truth when he tells us that first, in, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that the events in the Old Testament, including this uh, account of Belshazzar, the events in the Old Testament are written for our instruction and they serve us as examples to learn from. We should not think of ourselves as superior to them, but we should humble ourselves and learn from these examples. And then in the very next verse, the Apostle Paul says, this is uh, chapter 10, verse 12. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Belshazzar was pompous. He was defiant and he didn't know it, but he was on very thin ice. Now, this brings us to the second act of our story, which includes a puzzling message. Started with a pompous king, now there's a puzzling message. Look at verses 5 through 12. It says, suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out, Reed shouted or screamed right there. 
The king screamed out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man Daniel, whom, he, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult problems. So call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Belshazzar has called for the sacred vessels to be brought to his party in order to use them in the worship of the gods of Babylon. He is drunk he is defiant and he is daring God to do something about it. And then God responds. And suddenly what looks like a human hand appears and begins writing in the plaster on the wall. One commentator said, quite possibly the same finger that wrote the Ten Commandments in stone is now writing on the Babylonian plaster. And Belshazzar sees it and as he watches, he becomes utterly terrified. His knees knock together in fear. He's unable to stand because his legs are so weak they can't even support his weight. This guy is left in a pile. Just as a side note, every once in a while I come across folks who are just brazen enough to think that someday, if given the chance, they're going to give God a piece of their mind, requiring God to answer for himself for something they experienced down here that they didn't necessarily like. And when I hear that kind of foolishness, I usually quietly, quietly smile and kind of shake my head because one thing is clear in the scriptures, and that is this, in the presence of God, no one is standing and no one is demanding anything from him. He is answerable to no one. The presence of God will drive people to their knees and they will be completely undone. About 20 years ago, a worship song called I Can Only Imagine was produced by a band named Mercy Me. The chorus of that song goes like this. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? That's, that's it exactly, friends. 
That's it exactly. In the presence of God, no one stands. No one shakes his fist and no one pokes God in the chest demanding anything. Just to be clear, Belshazzar is completely undone in the presence of God because that's what the presence of God does to us. In that moment, he can't even stand up. So when the hand disappears, Belshazzar is unable to read or understand the writing. And so who does he call for? Well, of course, he calls for the magicians and enchanters and astrologers and diviners, which makes me laugh almost every time I read this. Because I'm surprised that the entire divination department hasn't been shut down already. How are these guys even still employed? In every chapter they've appeared, they've not been able to do what the king asks. And yet this group of men, or sorry, this group of men have shown themselves to be unreliable and untrustworthy, and yet Belshazzar foolishly calls for them first. And not surprisingly, they're unable to read the writing on the wall. In verse 10, the noise increases and the commotion becomes such that it gets the queen's attention and she enters the room. Now, most scholars believe that this was probably actually the queen mother. So this was not Belshazzar's wife. His wives and concubines were already in the room. Uh, most of them believe it was the queen mother, which she was the wife of the late King Nebuchadnezzar. And I happen to agree. She would have been very familiar with Daniel. She would have been, had the freedom to enter the king's presence uninvited. And she would have had the authority to give unrequested instruction to the king without fear of punishment. His wives would not have had those freedoms, but she did. And she reminds the king, there is a man in the kingdom with supernatural insight and wisdom. He has the spirit of the holy gods in him, and he has served faithfully in the past. He has always been able, even when everybody else has been unable. Nebuchadnezzar had appointed him chief of the wise men. Call for Daniel, she says. His counsel has always been competent. Always. Friends, can we pause here for just a moment? And let me say something to you. It matters who you get advice from. It matters who you get advice from. As you work to negotiate the maze of life, you will periodically need counsel before making very difficult decisions. And it matters who you turn to in those moments because your decisions will have consequences. Consequences not only for you, but maybe for your family or your coworkers or your church family. If there is a lesson to be learned from the wise men of Babylon, it is this, be diligent to find competent advisors. Find men and women who can coach, counsel, and clarify life's issues using biblical truth and godly wisdom and real life experience because it matters who you listen to. Our decisions have consequences, so find competent counselors. Now this brings us to the third act in our story, and this is called a prophet's rebuke. A prophet's rebuke. Look at, we're going to look at verses 13 to 24 here. So it says, so Daniel 
was brought before the king. And the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight and intelligence and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you're able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be, the third, you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. But nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the most high God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank from them. And you praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. So Daniel is called. The queen says, call for Daniel. He can help. And so Daniel is called and he enters the banquet hall. Now the text doesn't say this. This is just my opinion. But I imagine he was only a couple of steps into the banquet hall before he was able to assess what has been going on in that room prior to his arrival. I'm sure the disarray revealed the immorality and the debauchery and the golden goblets laying around on the floor revealed the sacrilege and defiance toward his God. Now, notice immediately that Belshazzar shows no respect or deference to Daniel. And this isn't just a minor case of the younger generation being kind of dismissive of the older generation, though Daniel is probably in his early 80s at this point. But that's not what's happening here. Belshazzar is looking to humiliate Daniel in front of his guests. The queen had spoken very highly of Daniel talking about his abilities and his superior competency and how he had faithfully served Nebuchadnezzar and highlighting that he had been appointed to be chief of the wise men. You see that in verses 11 and 12. Clearly, the queen thinks very highly of Daniel. But Belshazzar 
It's condescending. Oh, you're one of the exiles of Judah. Yeah. And as I read that text, I, I hear Belshazzar being a little bit smug, kind of that, you know, two kinds of people in this world, Daniel, there's winners and losers. We were the winners, just saying. Stay in your lane, know your place. Just very smug. The queen had acknowledged that Daniel had the spirit of the holy gods in him, and she knew this from experience. But Belshazzar was far more patronizing. I have heard that you have the spirit of gods in you, not holy gods, just the spirit of gods. I have heard that you have insight and intelligence and outstanding wisdom, implying, of course, that waits to be seen. And he says, I have heard that you give interpretations and can solve difficult problems. I, I just read his words as him being very smug towards Daniel. Belshazzar tells Daniel that the wise men were unable to explain the writing on the wall. But if Daniel can do it, the rewards would include a purple robe, and that was the symbol of royalty and power in the ancient Near East. It would include a gold chain around his neck that was always a symbol of holding high office in government. And he would be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom, next, of course, or uh, next only to Belshazzar himself and his father Nabonidus. And Daniel respectfully waved off all of the rewards. The king could keep them or give them to someone else. Daniel really had no need for them at this point in his life. However, he said he would still read and interpret the message as the king had requested. So Daniel first begins by reminding Belshazzar about King Nebuchadnezzar's humbling experience. When Nebuchadnezzar's heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, the Lord humbled him by deposing him from his throne and stripping him of his glory. And Belshazzar had seen this, and he knew how God had dealt with Nebuchadnezzar's pride and should have learned an important lesson about an arrogant and defiant heart. He also should have learned a lesson from what happened when Nebuchadnezzar repented and acknowledged that the Most High was sovereign over the kingdoms of men. His father was graciously restored to his throne, and he was uh, given his right mind, and he was allowed to reign again for a number of years. Daniel reminds him of all of this. And then in verses 22 and 23, Daniel respectfully turns his focus on Belshazzar. The king has not learned these lessons, and he has not humbled himself. He knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and he knew why it happened. The events in Nebuchadnezzar's life should have been a warning to Belshazzar, but he chose the opposite path. Belshazzar chose arrogance and defiance, and instead of acknowledging the Most High God and worshiping Him, Daniel says, you had the goblets of His temple brought to you, and, you, and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, and they cannot see or hear or understand. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your very life and all your ways. In a way, Daniel is saying, you have violated all that is sacred and you have desecrated that which is consecrated. 
You took what was dedicated for the worship of the God of heaven and defiantly used it in the worship of your own gods. Man-made carvings from gold and silver and bronze and iron and wooden stone. These carvings can't see or hear or understand. Belshazzar, do you understand what you have done? Not only have you withheld your worship from the one true God who holds in, your, in his hand your life, but you have spit in his face and dared him to do something about it. And because of your defiance, Belshazzar, God has sent the hand to announce your judgment. And so this proud potentate's punishment was publicly printed on the palace plaster. Tough story. But it brings us to the fourth act in our story, which is called a painful interpretation. Look at verses 25 to 29. Daniel continues with Belshazzar. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered your days, or sorry, numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple and a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. The message that the finger of God would have written on the wall would have consisted of 12 letters and it probably looked something like this, it transcribed into English, probably would have looked something like that. Aramaic is read from right to left. It is written without vowels and without spaces between the words, which means that different sets of words could potentially be formed depending upon how you divided up the consonants and which vowels you placed with them. Given the correct division and the correct vowels, the king's wise men may have read the verbs numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. But if they had gotten that far accurately, they would not have had any sense of the intended meaning of that. But Daniel, because God had revealed the meaning to him, Daniel was able to deliver the message of judgment to Belshazzar. Mene, he says, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. The fact that this was spoken twice means that, the, that God's decision was final. There would be no changing of the mind. Tekel, you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And Daniel now saw the handwriting on the wall, both literally and figuratively. And he knew his kingdom was coming to an end. But notice what he did and did not do in those moments. He did fulfill the promise of reward for Daniel. He ordered that Daniel be clothed in purple and a gold chain placed around his neck. He proclaimed him the third highest ruler in the land. But his motives are unclear here. He may have finally just been showing Daniel the respect he deserved. That could be. Or he may have simply been fulfilling the promise that he made in front of all of his guests, not wanting to embarrass himself. I better at least do what I said I was going to do. 
Or he may have been honoring Daniel as an attempt to appease Daniel's God with the hope that maybe God would withhold judgment. If I'm nice to your spokesperson, maybe you'll be nice to me. We don't know for sure because the text doesn't tell us. I am of the mind that Belshazzar was trying to appease Daniel's God, hoping that judgment could be avoided. I say that because Belshazzar never repented. He could have simply dropped to his knees and pleaded for mercy. And God may have responded to his humble repentance as he had at other times and maybe delayed judgment. Judgment was coming. Mene, mene had been repeated. It was coming, but God may have delayed it for him. But Belshazzar wouldn't do it. I think he was trying to get on God's good side without having to repent. Maybe repentance would have been too humiliating in front of all of these guests. Or maybe his heart was just a little bit too hard. I don't know for sure, but he never repented. And let me pause and say this to us as a church family. If the Lord is pressing his finger on an area of your life right now or just in recent days, if the Lord's pressing his finger on something in your life, I want to plead with you to be responsive to that. Belshazzar would not repent, but he tried to appease the Lord in a different way. Don't do that. Do whatever it is the Lord is asking you to do. Maybe he's asking you to repent of something. If so, then repent and seek to change whatever needs to be changed. Maybe he's asking you to offer an apology to somebody. If so, make the apology and seek to be restored. Maybe he's asking you to make amends with somebody. If so, make restitution if that's what he's asking you to do. Maybe he's asking you to change your approach to something. And if so, change it. Look for a new way to do what God's asking you to do. Maybe he's asking you to change a priority. If so, then choose to invest your time in, a new, in new ways. I don't know what the Lord might be pressing, if he's pressing on you these days or what he might be pressing on you. But if you feel it, I urge you, to be responsive to it. Because I think Belshazzar would say to each one of us, better to feel his finger pressing on your heart and be responsive than to ignore him and see his finger right on the wall. Right? That brings us to the final act of our story today. And we call this the Persian invasion. The Persian invasion. Look at verses 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Daniel concludes this chapter by telling us that Belshazzar died that very night. Secular historians confirm this. Darius the Mede had a general in his army named Ugbaru. And while Belshazzar was partying and carefree behind the impregnable walls of his kingdom... General Ugbaru and some of his men worked to redirect the water that went under one of the river gates in the wall. And once the, river, once the water level was low enough, the general simply led his men under the wall, into the city, and right up to the banquet hall. They took the city without a fight. 
and they sought to kill only one person, and that was the king, and they did. I'm going to close with this challenge for you, something for you to think about. Babylon had two proud kings. One was humble and repentant before his entire kingdom. So his life and his kingdom were spared for a time. And I fully expect that we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven someday. The other king was defiant and unrepentant in front of his kingdom. And his life and his kingdom were lost that very night. Two kings, two choices, two different outcomes. May God give to each one of us wisdom and humility to choose wisely. Let's pray. And then the worship team is going to come and close us with a song. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word speaks to us today. While this event in Daniel's life took place uh, nearly, nearly 2,600 years ago, the lessons learned still speak to us today. God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts, that we would cooperate with the work that your spirit wants to do so that our hearts would not be pompous or defiant, but that we would be humble and teachable, fully surrendered to you. God, I pray if you are pressing on any of our lives towards, uh, with something that you want us to give attention to, I pray that your spirit would communicate clearly what that is, and then I pray that you would move us to be responsive to that. God, we want to be a people that are growing and becoming more and more like Christ every single day. And so I pray that you would help us to be yielded and responsive to the teaching of your word in a way that would make that possible. We pray that your spirit would be free to do his work in each one of us. We love you. We want to follow you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.